is, is, is around the theme of union with Christ. Um, and uh, so far, we've been, we've been based in, in Ephesians chapter 1, um, and we're going to spend some time there as well. But particularly tonight, uh, we're going to move around a number of different passages, um, and we're thinking about the way... In out again for the idea of being in him. And then we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, and there just be on the lookout for the idea of Christ in us. Okay, those two sort of basic motifs about union with Christ, uh, us in Christ and Christ in us, are going to come out in these two readings. Why don't I pray for us uh, before Matt comes to read those. Uh, our Father God, we thank you uh, for uh, your word, uh, which speaks to us of spiritual truths. Uh, sometimes we've grasped those clearly, uh, sometimes barely at all, uh, but we have never uh, grasped uh, the depth of this spiritual truth uh, fully and completely. Uh, so help us tonight uh, that our understanding of what it means uh, to be united to Christ uh, will be clearer. Amen. Matt. So our first reading is from Ephesians, and that's page 1173, chapter 1, verse 11 to 22. So Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 11 to verse 22. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who were God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And Christ placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then our second reading, if you toggle back a few pages, is Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to verse 21, and that's on page 1,168 of our Bibles.
So Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to verse 21. We, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Matt, for reading for us. So Alice was a young woman uh, who had always had a hunch that something wasn't quite right about her life. Something about her parents that didn't seem right. Something about her life that seemed awry. At times, she'd taken to wondering whether in some peculiar way she might actually be in the wrong family. Like, like one of those children who in some bizarre way got swapped at birth. All that changed the day she found a dusty trunk in the attic of her parents' home. And she unpicked the lock and inside found foolproof evidence that she had indeed been abducted at birth. That her parents were not her real parents. Her real parents were extraordinary. Her mother, a famous singer at the Sorbonne in Paris. Her father, a Nobel Prize winner, and an Olympic rower to boot. And suddenly, for Alice, it all made sense. Her musical abilities, her capacity with maths, her unfulfilled sporting capacities. Alice had extraordinary parents, and Alice was extraordinary herself. And what's more, she discovered evidence that her parents were fabulously rich, and a vast inheritance lay ahead for her. Everything changed that day. When Alice came down from the attic, it was as if she had been reborn. Of course, in one sense, nothing had changed. Those gifts had always been hers. That inheritance had always been hers. Proof of that was written into her DNA, who she really was. But something had changed. What had changed was that now she knew it. It is a slightly ludicrous story, isn't it? Um, and uh, I hope you understand that it is a ludicrous story. But it's a story that Rankin Wilborn uh, begins this really excellent little book about union with Christ by telling. Um, and, and his point in telling the story, and my point in putting you through it this, more, this evening, um, is that it, it kind of captures the gap that often exists in the experience of a Christian believer 
between the spiritual realities, who we really are, and our experience of them. See, see, for for Alice, it was true that she was uh, the child of these extraordinary parents and that she had this fantastic inheritance. But she wasn't living as if that were true. Uh, And that gap between what was true about her and the way that she was actually living her life Uh, Rankin Wilborn likens to the gap that exists for so many of us from the the spiritual reality of who we are in Christ and the way that we live day to day. He he tells a lovely story about early in his ministry where he preached a sermon around these kind of things and a man at the back said, uh, lovely sermon, lovely sermon, now let's get back to real life. You know, as much to say, look, yeah, I know you say these things on a Sunday, but we we don't really believe them during the week. Well, this series about union with Christ has that aim in mind for our lives to be more in line with the spiritual realities that we profess. Most of us would be able to say probably uh, what it is that we believe about Jesus, what it is we believe about being a Christian believer, what it is we have as Christian believers. We could recite a number of uh, the truths of the spiritual riches that we have by virtue of being a Christian. Uh, The question is, how big a gap is there between that kind of pieces of information in our head and the real sense that this is true in the way that we live our life, the way that we feel in the core of our being? So so let's begin by just reminding ourselves what union with Christ is really all about. I suggested earlier on uh, those two ideas. um, Me in Christ and Christ in me. Um, the New Testament doesn't very much use the language of being a Christian. Uh, The New Testament tends to use the language of being in Christ or in him. That's its shorthand for what being a believer is. Uh, Paul uses it some 160 times uh, in his bits of writing. And, And as I think Michael has mentioned already, in this single long opening sentence in the original, in Ephesians chapter 1, Um, he uses the phrase in him or in Christ no less than 11 times, uh, which is why we've based ourselves here to think about union with Christ. Uh, And there's lots of images in the Bible um, that capture the idea of union with Christ. When you you stop and think about them, they're everywhere, aren't they? Um, Peter, in his letters, likens it to being stones in a temple with Christ as the foundation stone. Paul likens it to being parts of of the body of which Christ is the head. Ephesians, uh, Paul likens it there to to the union between husband and wife, that mystery of one fleshness. It's that much of a unity. Uh, And then Jesus himself speaks in terms of him being the vine and his followers being the branches. Uh, all of those images couldn't get tighter, could they? You can can feel the sense, the the union that's being described, bits of a body, stones in a temple, branches of a vine. They're really, really tight images. Bound together uh, is uh, the point that we're being pressed upon us. So, earlier on this afternoon, 
uh, I said to Beth, Beth, so that, that my wife Beth, I said to my wife Beth, just so that you are culturally up to the moment, can I tell you that we won? I'd like her to be up to, uh, in touch with the cricket. Uh, and I said, I just want you to know that we won. Now, when I say we won, clearly she doesn't imagine that I was playing much as I would like to have been, but she knows that I'm English and I like cricket. So I identify with the English cricket team. And when they win, I say, we won. It's solidarity with the team. Now, if you want a more biblical example, think of David and Goliath. You know, what happened there? The Israelites and the Philistines had their champion who went to do battle. And what happened to their champion happened to them. David won the victory uh, and the Israelites, all, the whole army won that day without lifting a sword. So that's the picture of unity with Christ. What, what happens to Christ happens to us. That's what we mean by unity. Now, I, I know that the idea is slippery I appreciate that. For, for, for you this evening, if you're a Christian believer, to say that I am united with Christ, so therefore what is true of him is true of me, that his victory on the cross over sin is my victory, that his spiritual riches in relationship with his Father are my spiritual riches, that his future is my future, I know those are slippery things. It's quite hard to sort of to, to bring them from the ideas, from sort of, you know, okay, the sort of vague ideas up there into lived experience. So when Ephesians 2, slightly later, says this, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, past tense, God has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You could be forgiven for thinking, duh, you know, I'm not. I'm seated on, you know, quite uncomfortable pews over on the side there because I didn't get, I was in the cheap seats um, instead of these nice comfy ones here. But, you know, this is where I'm seated. I'm not seated in the heavenly realms. I'm seated here in this sort of building. But there's a spiritual reality to this. You know, in spiritual terms, in, in terms of what is true spiritually and eternally, when you become a Christian believer, you, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms because everything that has happened to Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, spiritually is yours. It's a big thing. So, rather like Alice and her attic, you can see that it would, it would make a big difference, wouldn't it, if we really knew that it was true, if we'd unlocked the dusty chest and we'd, and, and we'd found evidence and now we were really persuaded of this, now we really believed it, now we came down from the attic and we said, right, the way I'm going to live my life is utterly different now, now that I know, really know. How might that happen? How might you and I in our experience, if you're a Christian believer, how much you really know and live day to day utterly persuaded of these things. As if everything about the way that you live, the way that you relate to people, it lives out of this truth. How might that happen? Um, I, I want to make three suggestions uh, for how we might move further in that direction. Um, here's the first. Uh, that we acknowledge the threat. 
Now, there you go, that wasn't what you expected uh, for the first one up, was it? What do I mean by that? Well, I think I mean by that that union with Christ, we need to understand that it means loss as well as gain. Because how does Jesus describe coming to him? He describes coming to him, he describes becoming a disciple as losing your life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. There is a sense of of a kind of a loss, of a death to self involved in uniting ourselves to Christ. Putting off the old self does come with a little bit of resistance, doesn't it? Um, Look at these verses. Uh, I told you we're going to jump around a bit. Um, uh, We normally base ourselves in one passage tonight. We're going to jump around trying to pick up what we understand about union with Christ. Look at these verses in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. When you become a Christian believer, you're so united with Christ that he indwells you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that has implications. Here, in this section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he's saying it has implications for your sexual activity. Make a difference. If Christ is in you, then how could you just be casual about what you do with your body in which Christ dwells? Couldn't possibly be casual about that. No, not if Christ is in you, And therefore, when you unite yourself with somebody sexually that you shouldn't do, you're doing it with a body that Christ indwells. In other words, it's a big thing to say I'm united to Christ. It has huge implications for the way that I'm going to choose to live, the implications for how I will seek to be holy now that I know that my body is indwelt by Christ, by his spirit. So so feel the threat I think if we, if we don't sense that this is a really big thing to say and that we're making a really big commitment in saying, I am united to Christ, then it means we haven't quite understood what being united to Christ really means. As I reflected on that this week, I, I found myself taken back um, to, to the night that I became a Christian. And forgive me, some of you will have heard me uh, say something similar to this before. But what I remember most vividly because uh, in my experience, there was a particular night uh, that I took the decision to become a Christian disciple. Not everyone experiences it like that, but I did. But what I remember most about that night was that I felt afraid. I, I had a distinct sense of being on the edge of, of like a void. And that to take another step, I didn't know where it was going to take me. I knew enough about the Christian faith to know that I was giving myself over to Christ that I was deciding that he was going to be my ruler now. There was lots I didn't understand about the Christian faith, but I got that much. And I realized that to take this step of faith, I didn't know where it was going to lead. I didn't know what God would do with me, but I knew that I was handing my life over to him. And I felt frightened, fearful of stepping forward. And in the end, 
The reason that I went ahead and prayed a prayer and took a step of faith was because I thought the Jesus that I have read about, the Jesus that people have been talking to me about, seems to me to be the most loving and most trustworthy person I have ever encountered. If I can't trust him, I can't trust anybody. So despite my sense of fear at the magnitude of what this involved, uh, I prayed a prayer and became a Christian. So you see, see, acknowledge the threat. Realize that the magnitude of what it is to be a Christian believer, it's radical to hand yourself over to Jesus. And it stays radical. Every day, as you say to yourself, I belong to Christ, it's a radical thing that you're saying. So, acknowledge the threat. Second, imagine the gift. Um, Come back to to Ephesians chapter 1. And let me read a chunk there. Let me read from verse 15. Um, And we're thinking now about the gift and wanting to to imagine uh, having this gift. Uh, And notice how Paul prays. For this reason, Paul writes... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Stop there. You spot the funny phrase in the middle of that where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's a funny phrase. Eyes of your heart. Not physical eyes, Let's see physical realities. No, no, this is, this is spiritual eyes that see spiritual realities. And he's praying that you might see with those spiritual eyes. Because there are some truths, aren't there, which you can't see physically. And therefore, experiencing the truth of them means imagining them, sensing their reality with the eyes of faith seeing them vividly with the eyes of your heart so that they are really persuasive to you. That's what it means to experience, isn't it? I mean, I can tell you that, or you could tell me that I am now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And it's just words. But imagine believing it, seeing it with the eyes of your heart so that you were utterly persuaded of it. That that's where you were spiritually. It's a different thing, isn't it? Slippery, but do you understand? It's a different thing. It's the same idea in those verses we read earlier in Galatians 2, where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's true if you're a Christian believer. Your old life is dead. 
a new life in Christ has begun. It's true. Do you feel it? It means huge potential change, doesn't it? Who you are and what you can do changes because of this spiritual truth. Because you are now united with Christ, because your life, the life that you now live in the body, is a life lived by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, all sorts of your old limitations are gone. And all sorts of new possibilities have arrived. That's what this transition means. It's so easy, isn't it, to feel defeated and ensnared as a Christian believer, to feel like a failure. But, but union with Christ won't allow that. We aren't a failure. We are as precious to God as Christ himself is. Do the eyes of your heart see that? When something's whispering, you're not much good, are you? You're not up to much. You're not worth much. Have you got another voice that sees and hears and understands that you're united with Christ, as precious to God as Jesus himself is? That's what it means to experience that. Or it's so easy to feel inadequate and incapable as a believer. As if so many things of Christian discipleship are a bit beyond us. But again, union with Christ won't allow that. Because to, to be united to Christ means you are no longer limited by your own capacities. No, you are now enabled by Christ. The, the boundaries of what is possible for you are now only bounded by what Christ can do. And how vast is that? And again, is that an idea or do we see it with the eyes of our, faith, uh, eyes of our heart? Um, Rankin Wilborn, in, um, in a rather lovely analogy, says, all, all of this means that to be a Christian is rather more Spider-Man than Batman. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, well, if, if you know your superheroes, well, you know that, that Batman, it's, you know, his superness is all about stuff on the outside. He's fabulously rich and he's very clever with gadgets. So he has all this external stuff that he uses, Batmobiles and bat torches and, and all the other stuff, in order to, to, to be superhero-ish. It's stuff on the outside. But Spidey, Spidey's very different, isn't he? Spidey is a superhero because of a transformation, because he got bitten by that radioactive spider. And that brought a change internally. The change is from within. He is now transformed. He is now different by nature. Uh, and, um, uh, Rankin Wilborn is saying that to be a Christian is more Spider-Man than Batman. It is an internal transformation that God has brought about in you when you come to faith. You are spiritually remade through this unity, through this union with Christ. And, and, and so when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, one of the things that we will see 
um, verse 19 of Ephesians 1. One of the things that we will see when the eyes of our heart are enlightened is his incomparably great power for us who believe. What kind of power? The power that is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That's the power at work within you because of your union with Christ. That the same power that raised Christ from the dead at work within you as a Christian believer because you are united with him, because of your union with him. Acknowledge the threat. Realize the magnitude of what it is to unite yourself with Christ. Because if, if, you, if you shy back from that, then you're not really embracing this truth at all. Imagine the gift. You have to see it with the eyes of faith. See it with the eyes of your heart. Uh, and then finally, experience the unknowable. Um, just, just return for a moment um, to, to Alice in her attic. Um, you remember the, the picture. Alice always was the child of exceptional parents, always gifted with their talents. She was always the heir of their fortune. She had that inheritance. What she lacked was any lived experience of that truth. And in a sense, and I'm doing this too quickly, but in a sense that's a little bit like the difference between being the, the, the knowledge that you might have that you are justified and the experience you have of being sanctified. See, justification says that God has done everything that is needed for you to be absolutely righteous in God's eyes. But sanctification is the, the work that God does in, in working that out in us so that we become like Christ in daily life. And those two things go together. The reformer John Calvin said that um, Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, relates to justification and sanctification a bit like the sun relates to heat and light. So heat and light are two different things, clearly. But the sun can't help but produce both of them. It has to be. The sun just does produce heat. It does produce light, even though they are two very different things. Um, and Calvin's sort of analogy was to say, the righteousness of Jesus at work in you as a believer similarly does these two different things, and it must do both of them. It will do both of them. He will do both of them. Both justifying you before his Father and also sanctifying you so that you grow in the likeness of Jesus. And that's what Paul prays for uh, in that great prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, as we just wrap up, um, let's just look at this prayer together. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. That's a bit small, let me read. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. Now, I've plucked out that phrase in blue. Paul prays that they might know that Paul prays that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your only being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, is that because he thinks Christ doesn't yet dwell in their hearts through faith? Of course not, because they're believers. He's writing to believers. So he, he teaches that Christ dwells in their hearts through faith. So, so why does he say he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith? It has to be that he wants them to have the experience of it. He wants them to know it as a lived reality. That, that you know that Christ dwells in your heart. You know this union with Christ. And that's why he presses on to say, how will you do that? You will know the scale of his love for you. You'll know the height, breadth, depth, length of his love. Because if you really knew that, if you experienced that kind of love from Christ for you, well then that really is to know your union with Christ. That really would be then to live out of that reality in day-to-day life. And to do so is to know what can't be known, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Because you'll never get there, not this side of eternity. You'll never fully know just how much Christ loves you because it's unfathomable. But Paul is praying for these Christians that they might know more and more and more of it, to grow in the scale of understanding of it. We'll we'll never be done with getting hold of this truth of what it is to be united with Christ. I said it's slippery. I said it's a sort of a mystical knowledge that your life, if you're a believer, is united with his. But the Christian life should be about growing in a depth of awareness of that with each passing year. Three things then. Feel the threat. Know the radical call to union with Christ. Imagine the gift. Understand. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart to really see it and therefore that you might experience the unknowable the extraordinary love of Christ for you uh, and feel it, not just know it as a truth in your head. Um, Let me pray for that now. Uh, Lord God, we know our capacity to uh, to rehearse truths, uh, to love ideas, uh, perhaps, uh, and yet to fall short of, of knowing these truths uh, in the depths of our being. Uh, we know our need, in other words, for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, uh, to know all it is that you have done for us uh, in bringing us uh, into union uh, with your Son. So, Heavenly Father, uh, 
grant that your spirit would indeed uh, enlighten the eyes of our heart uh, so that we might live no longer for ourselves, live no longer uh, an old life uh, that has died, uh, but to live a new life uh, by faith in the Son of God. Uh, And we ask it in his name. Amen.